Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JV3, and we are doing something a little bit different today. We are featuring a panel, which has been on my to-do list for quite some time. When I stood up Equity Matters, I went back and forth on how frequently you would hear from me as a guest, when you would hear from others, and when you would actually get to hear multiple voices and perspectives. And so for 2021, I wanted to make a point to launch this thing I am calling the community of practice. And for those who are not familiar with what a community of practice is, it's typically a group of individuals who come together to talk about a very specific thing that they're all passionate about. It's also the mutual exchange of information and ideas in one setting. And so today I am kicking off the community of practice series. You'll hear these a few times throughout the year. I'll sneak them in in between episodes. It'll be well worth it, a nice shift from what we're talking about, whatever that month's theme may be. And so this month, we're talking all about evidence-based practices. Now, I don't want to spoil anything as far as what they are, because our guests have a great opportunity to explain what that is. But there's certainly some implications when it comes to equity and evidence-based practices. So we talk about the process. We talk about some of the outcomes. All right, I'm sharing too much. Let's get into the episode. I'm excited to introduce you all to Dr. Juliet McClendon, Brandon Johnson, and Deja Clement, who will be sharing on the first Community of Practice episode from Equity Matters Podcast. Uh, Dr. McClendon, you want to kick us off with some introductions? Sure. Um, So hello. I'm really happy to be here. I'm Juliet McClendon. um, And I am originally from the California Bay Area. And it is a place that I really miss, and I haven't been back there in about a year. So um, I'm, you know, looking forward to when we can travel again. Right now, I live in Boston, um, and I first moved to Boston for um, college. Uh, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate, and then moved to St. Louis to attend Washington University for my PhD in clinical psychology. And then I moved back here to the Boston area to do my internship. And, um, and then now I'm a psychologist um, at for, working for the federal government. And I also am an assistant professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine. And right now, um, what I do, I mostly do research now. Um, I also do clinical work, but the majority of my, uh, of my work is clinical research. And right now I'm evaluating, I'm doing a project where I'm evaluating an intervention that um, targets race-based stress and trauma. So discrimination-related stress among people of color. And the purpose of that intervention is really to reduce the negative impacts of discrimination on health outcomes. Um, And so I'm evaluating such an intervention. Um, And my, my plans for the future are to continue to look at that intervention and So I have a lot of um, expertise and experience in the area of evidence-based practice and empirically supported treatments um, and how to deliver those in an effective way. Um, And then more and more looking at how we can better incorporate a consideration of race, ethnicity, and culture in our standard evidence-based treatments um, to deliver higher quality care for people of color. Deja, you want to go next? 
Hi, I am Deja Clement, um, and I am a third year clinical psychology doctoral student at Oklahoma State University. Um, I am originally from New York, um, a small town in New York of New Paltz, New York, about an hour from the city, and I also miss it very much, um, even though I'll be going home next week embracing uh, the COVID travel uh, <laughs> struggles. Um, I um, got my undergrad uh, degree at West Virginia University in psychology, and I am currently um, a member of the Laboratory of Suicide Risk and Resilience under the supervision of Dr. Larika Wingate. Um, a lot of the work that we do is examining suicide um, risk factors uh, within diverse populations, but specifically black populations. Um, I have a really strong passion in examining what this looks like for black women. Um, and so my most recent research project is just really focusing on um, applying models of suicide to black women and evaluating whether or not they fit. Um, so I definitely think that that really goes along with the lines of evidence-based practice, because if we know that these models aren't fitting for Black women or for Black populations more broadly, then maybe we shouldn't be using them, um, or how do we need to adapt them? And so that's kind of where I'm really at right now, but then also looking at how can I apply my research to policy to kind of make more bigger changes. And so I'm really interested in public health and the intersection of public health and psychology. Thanks, Tasia. And Brandon, bring us home. Sure, sure. So excited to be here. I'm Brandon Johnson. I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland. I'm still here, so I don't have to travel anywhere. <laughs> but born and raised in, uh, in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I got my uh, undergrad degree in psychology from the magnificent Morgan State University and got my, I have a master's in uh, health science from uh, Johns Hopkins Lumber School of Public Health. And I also received a graduate certificate in health education from Johns Hopkins. Um, currently, I work for the federal government doing suicide prevention. I work at Samson, the suicide prevention branch. I do want to make the disclaimer that I am not representing them today on this podcast. But um, so I work and do um, some different things there, a number of different grant programs. I work as a government project officer overseeing grants that are given to states, tribal organizations, healthcare organizations and the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, which is a grant that comes through the federal government to create resources, webinars, materials, and trainings for suicide prevention across the country is also in my portfolio. So there I do a lot of work in uh, Black youth suicide prevention, uh, working with a number of agencies across the federal government and coordinating and collaborating on projects centered around Black youth suicide prevention. Um, outside from that, I have a YouTube channel called the Black Mental Wellness Lounge that I started um, during COVID. And so uh, working on that as well. But that's a bit about me and what I've been working on currently. I'm going to add also as a government employee, everything I talk about here are my own opinions. You know, it's funny, I've never gave the disclaimer, but it is also true for me as a state government employee. It's my opinions, my thoughts. So please, Michigan, don't be mad. So let's define the problem, right? So I want to get a little bit of context. And for the listeners who are not as familiar, what exactly is an evidence-based practice? I mean, could you offer a few examples or something that people may recognize when they hear the name? 
Sure. So when I think of evidence-based practice, I think of the treatments um, and the, yeah, treatments, um, different interventions that we do within mental health practice that are backed by randomized control trials or randomized clinical trials. Um, and this can be kind of a wide range of things. I think the most apparent one that comes to mind because it's what my, um, or at least what I've been really heavily trained to do is CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, or like DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy. All of these things are evidence-based such that there is research to back them. Um, and those are, that's the best way that I can put it in simplest terms. Yeah, and I'll add that a randomized controlled trial, the important thing about it is that um, it's controlled. So basically you're comparing an active treatment to some sort of comparison, whether that be like standard supportive therapy that doesn't have any particular target of treatment or um, comparing it to a waitlist control, so where people are not receiving the treatment right then and there. Um, and so you're comparing that active treatment to another um, less active treatment, and then that shows you that the evidence-based practice or what eventually will become the evidence-based practice has a superior sort of impact on reducing mental health symptoms compared with the control group. And that's sort of the, the high, sort of the gold standard of showing that a treatment has um, an evidence base for it. And often it takes a while for something to be considered an evidence-based practice because it needs sort of a good, like a, a, a track record of many studies that show that it's effective. Thank you for that ad, Dr. McClendon. And it segued into my next question about the process of being identified as an evidence-based practice. So it sounds like, you know, it could take years. You know, it starts off as a theory. It has to be tested. It has to be, demonstrate results and utility. How long could that take? I mean, it can take, it can take a long, a very long, long time for, for years to be considered an evidence-based practice. And also, there are a number of repositories and registries and things that kind of have evidence-based practices and, and kind of certify things as evidence-based practice. And so usually there's a scientific, uh, you know, rigorous analysis that's done with the evidence-based practice, looking into the evidence and seeing what the results have been over a number, um, a number of studies. It's usually more than one, um, but they want to maintain consistency and to be able to be reliable and valid over a number of different studies and settings, hopefully, over a number of different settings uh, with a number of different people. But generally speaking, it just has to have that consistency. And then what happens from there is that some repository, like I know, you know, SAMHSA has its own way of defining it, other places, NIH had their own way of defining it. Um, but there has to be scientific rigor that's associated with the evidence-based practice and applying it uh, to the field. And that's when it's kind of certified, I guess, depending on the place that's doing it as an evidence-based practice. And I, I think that there's a, there's a, there's a, there is a well-established gap between research and practice. And I think, um, at least when I was in graduate school, I don't know what the updated numbers are on this or if there are updated numbers, but it was something like there's 17 years between when basically the first study of a treatment is done and then when it starts to be applied in the field. So there's a big gap in time um, between when we start, it's, uh, when we start looking at these treatments in an experimental way and when they actually start being used more widely. And there are still big gaps and issues with these being implemented in the field, in the community. 
let's introduce equity into the space, right? So equity for me is all about acknowledging the barriers to access. It acknowledges that there's certain obstacles, whether systemic or institutional, that we need to acknowledge before people can take advantage of whatever the thing is. And so adopting that lens, there sounds like there could actually be threats for evidence-based practice when we're talking about communities of color, especially if you talk about the 17-year gap. I mean, could you talk or speak to some of the challenges that we see once we adopt that lens? Yeah, I, I can jump back in with that one. Um, part of the issue with, as we look into equity around evidence-based practice, a part of the problem is, for me, looking at the, where the funding goes. So as a part of being able to study and rigorously test um, a practice to make sure that it's uh, just considerate evidence-based, um, takes, takes funding, takes resources, and takes um, a rigorous evaluation process to look at the results of an evidence-based practice over time in different settings. Um, we know that there is a massive disparity in Black scientists who get funded to do research and to be able to define something and get the, the evaluation and get that, uh, that information and that data to be able to represent something as being evidence-based. And so as we see this huge disparity in Black scientists uh, receiving funding from, you know, some big national organizations, what happens is the practices that are being developed by people of color in different places, um, African-Americans specifically, as well as <clears throat> American Indian Alaska Native people, as they're trying to get the funding, they're not receiving the funding and then are not able to rigorously test and evaluate their practices when a lot of their practices and a lot of our practices are stemmed in, in culture. They have results, they see impact, um, and they're considered and labeled like promising practices, um, which means they don't necessarily have the, uh, the data and the scientific rigor to call itself an evidence-based practice. But as long as we can see, continue to see funding levels um, not being consistent with white researchers and white scientists, we're, we're gonna continue to see a gap in evidence-based practices who have not been studied in our communities um, things and interventions and prevention strategies that have been created by our community not fitting the scientific rigor, so to speak, of being an evidence-based practice. So there's so many practices out there that we know impact our people, but we can't get them on an evidence-based practice list because the funding is skewed to other scientists. Absolutely. Um, and, and thinking about I mean, I think that there are so many different issues when it comes to equity and evidence-based practice. Um, and so I'll kind of come at this from a similar, but maybe a different angle as well as, you know, the way that we do research is very white centric. And so many of the samples or many of the, um, many of the samples that we use in research to actually study these treatments uh, tend to be predominantly white. And not only are they predominantly white, but researchers tend not to then also look at whether there are racial differences or ethnic differences in the effectiveness um, of these treatments. Um, so I recently wrote a paper looking at um, PTSD treatment, um, evidence-based treatments for PTSD, and um, trying to understand whether there were any racial and ethnic disparities in outcomes or in different aspects of those treatments. And what we, the main thing that we found is that there's really very little research even asking the question and looking at that question. Um, and then for that, for the research that did look at that, those questions, what we tended to see was 
less initiation of evidence-based practice among um, racialized groups um, and greater dropout from treatment. And um, there was really limited evidence for us to really know whether there were differences in actual outcomes. So like reduction in PTSD symptoms. And there's definitely good reason to think that there may be racial and ethnic differences in um, or disparities in how well these treatment these treatments work for different groups, but we just don't know because we don't have the research on that. Yeah, I think that Dr. McClendon and Brandon really hit the nail on the head of exactly like all of the different frustrations that I feel in terms of evidence based treatments. Um, and I feel like the question that we're constantly asking ourselves is like, okay, well, we have this evidence-based treatment now. How do we need to adapt it to this specific population? Or how do we need to adapt it to your diverse client? And sometimes that can feel, again, just like really frustrating um, because I wish that the treatment was already adapted to the needs of my diverse clients and not having to implement all these different things in order to make it more appropriate for the specific population. And I feel, I definitely feel that way, especially with suicide prevention efforts um, with the black population, but then with, also within, um, there's a really large native population here in Oklahoma. Um, and that's typically where we are focusing on suicide prevention within the native population. And again, these treatments are not effective for them. So that's definitely like, like the biggest concern. I'm curious to know what happens to those lost practices, right? So you, Brandon, you mentioned that uh, some of these practices need to find their way onto a list or to a registry and scientists have put in a significant amount of work, yet we don't actually see them ever implemented. What happens to them? I mean, honestly speaking, some of them do go away. Some of them are still implemented in the places where they're created and they are disseminated through other networks, some that um, that we have, that we create um, with Black researchers and scientists connecting with one another and kind of building our own spaces like we're doing now and like you have with your podcast of, and being able to put those things out um, so people can access them, but that just never rise to the surface um, that, that we don't get. Um, the other piece that this impacts is that um, to be able to get, you know, future funding, you know, individuals who, you know, will put something forward, it gets to be an evidence-based practice. The other piece of that is when there's federal, you know, funds available wherever they are, I can't just say federal, but wherever they are, if, you know, during the application process, one of the things that they always ask for is evidence-based practices. So if you're putting in something that isn't considered evidence-based, but you have your local research, you have your local data, but it's not on any evidence-based, you know, practice list, then you're less likely to get funded. And so those things, so the opportunity there would be for you to get funded, evaluated as a part of this grant or part of this other initiative, and then get the data on it. But what happens is, is that they continue not to get funded. So there's this cycle of, of funding where people, you know, and for venture people, there are gatekeepers that keep these things from getting, you know, into, into the mainstream. And so some places, you know, eventually like it, it kind of gets lost or they deviate away from it to try to make it, you know, fit more of something that would be able to, to be considered evidence-based. But, you know, short answer is some of it gets lost um, and some of it kind of, you know, goes into other arenas just by word of mouth and other published papers and things like that. But the issue is that, um, it shouldn't be that difficult for people to be able to get their evaluations and things and get funding for evaluations to test these things so it can get put on some other list as well. 
And I also think part of the problem and why some of these treatments that may be very effective for groups of people kind of get lost in the shuffle is because um, the way that sort of the the standards that we have for what makes something an evidence-based practice or what we consider evidence is very biased in a lot of ways. And so, you know, there's a heavy reliance in psychological science on quantitative um, evidence. So sort of, you know, numerical symptom reduction based on certain symptom checklists that, by the way, many of those symptom checklists have not necessarily been validated with all different groups of people. Um, And um, there's less of a reliance on sort of qualitative evidence. So sort of hearing from the from people who are being treated or from the communities themselves, whether this treatment has been helpful for them. There's a lot less of a reliance on that. It's viewed as sort of inferior to these changes in symptom measures. And so I think that that really has a, an impact on what is considered evidence-based and what is not considered evidence-based. And I think that that can be a big problem um, for treatment within the context of this lack of funding for a particular for, for doing research with particular kinds of treatments that, um, that may be very beneficial for particular communities. And we just sort of have this standard that makes it difficult, that's a high standard that makes it difficult to be more inclusive about which treatments we consider to be helpful for communities. So I'm so excited yeah. that you, oh, go ahead, Brenda, sorry. No, sorry, just to jump in there real quick. Um, yeah, so that point is very well taken, and it comes out a lot. Of, part of my work is working with uh, tribal communities, tribal nations, tribal organizations, and um, you know, one a part of their suicide prevention work is that culture is prevention, and so a lot of their historical cultural practices that uh, they still do today and that they pass down from generation to generation, being engaged in those and being a part of those. Uh, whether it be smudging, whether it be beating, you know, whether it be taking um, uh, taking part of some of their uh, their celebrations throughout the year um, that really speak to, in, you know, in storytelling, all these things that are part of their culture, they speak to how being engaged in culture is prevention. However, the difficult like part about that that Dr. McClendon talked about is how do we quantify that? This has been passed from generation to generation. We know it works. We know it helps people. We, we know it, you know, keeps our, our youth engaged uh, and feeling a part of the community. It increases their sense of self. It uh, improves their self-esteem. Um, it gives them self-efficacy that they feel like they can find ways to cope with uh, things that are happening, um, you know, in their, in their lives. But how do we measure that, that it fits this standard that we've put on evidence-based practice? And we know it helps. And if we can't get funding for it, or things that will, you know, help to ensure it and sustain it over time, then again, you know, we're not able to get those get those resources. But I totally agree with your point. So, Dr. McLean, I'm glad that you introduced this concept of community into the discussion with evidence-based practices. What is the role of community as a facilitator or maybe even a barrier to EBPs? I think there's more and more work being done in this area in terms of, um, you know, really informative research methods and approaches that are really based on community participatory research methods where the community um, where a particular treatment is you know being tested or implemented the community itself is engaged in um, 
you know, learning about this intervention, providing feedback about the intervention, talking about how, you know, the ways in which this intervention is really useful for us and the ways in which it needs to be changed or adapted to be more relevant to the community. Um, that kind of re those kinds of research methods are really, really useful in making sure that a treatment is going to be accepted by a community and is going to be useful for that community. Um, so that's one way that, that researchers are doing more to try and, um, to try and make uh, interventions more relevant for communities. Um, I think the other thing to note that is important to think about is, oh, well, the other thing I'll say that is being done more and more is sort of using um, like peer specialists or um, community-based um, healthcare workers who may or may not be clinicians, but training those individuals, uh, people who already live in the community and who have relationships with community members, um, training them up to be able to deliver these treatments or engage in these interventions with people. And that can really help to in improve trust in the intervention, as well as just because people already have relationships with individuals delivering the treatment, it just improves, again, that acceptability and that willingness to engage. Um, and then one other thing I'll say is that, you know, I think one thing that, that is also a barrier is that um, in a lot of community settings, and we're talking healthcare settings, I'm talking about healthcare settings here, is that in a lot of community settings, um, clinicians are like to be able to provide therapy in a way that's culturally responsive and oftentimes are very well adept at being very responsive to the culture and backgrounds of their patients. But evidence-based practices or evidence-based treatments are often very highly manualized and often lack, flex um, lack flexibility. Um, in their uh, delivery. And so that's a conflict that can happen sometimes where clinicians in the community want to be able to provide treatment in a flexible manner, but these manuals for evidence-based treatments are rather rigid. And so how do we find, how do we bridge that gap and how do we find a way to maintain the effectiveness of the intervention while also allowing flexibility? Yeah, I really like uh, Dr. McClendon's first two points in terms of building up that, like, except acceptability, sorry, of um, these evidence-based practices within communities of color, because I think that that trust is like the biggest thing, at least when I'm doing my research as well as my practice. Um, like specifically, again, coming back to suicide, because that's like my primary focus, I think specifically with Native communities, there is so much mistrust of uh, white researchers and just this space, this white-centered space in general. And so how do you get those participants to even come in to start to do the research? Um, and again, I really like that community-based participatory uh, research uh, perspective because I think that when you have those community leaders and you have healthcare workers or you have researchers all kind of working together to approach a community then you get so much more impactful research that again leads to better evidence-based practices rather than um, not having that uh, perspective from the community. I totally agree with Deja. I think that trust is a really central factor that we need to address in order to improve equity in mental health. You all are giving me ideas for so many different episodes. Like, I wish, and this is me speaking from more of a health policy perspective, I wish we would invest the way that people deserve when it comes to like community health workers, right? Like it's been proven to demonstrate like it makes a difference 
and yet we have not successfully integrated CHWs into the healthcare model. Like they're not sustainable within the state of Michigan. I'm not sure how it is in Maryland or Boston or Oklahoma, but a lot of our CHWs are actually funded by grants that end, right? And mm -hmm. it's difficult to really demonstrate the ROI if you know their practice is actually held by a tether. Like it, it's impossible for us to say, you know, we've been able to make these strides and therefore health plans, you need to go ahead and reimburse CHWs for their services. I mean, it just goes into this bigger conversation of the gaps when it comes to equity, when it comes to like being intentional on the ways that we disrupt the medical model. Absolutely. And so we, we brought up this idea of trust, right? So what happens when trust is lost within communities when it comes to researchers? I mean, we could talk about Tuskegee, we could talk about Henrietta Lacks. What happens, and especially from like the actual practice and research perspective, how do you get over that barrier? It will derail any type of research program or thing that you're looking to study in a community if the trust is gone. And again, totally representing myself and speaking with this, like this is something that like historically, you know, you mentioned Henrietta Lacks, but if you look at, at Baltimore and look at, you know, Johns Hopkins, there's a big history there of Johns Hopkins in East Baltimore. It goes so beyond that uh, individual experience there has been many uh, promises that have been made to, you know, parts of, of East Baltimore where Johns Hopkins is, um, you know, for, you know, if you come in for this research, um, this research initiative, help us with this, you know, we'll give this to the community, we'll do this, we'll do that. And there are so many promises that weren't upheld that there is a huge mistrust even to this day um, in the community in Hopkins. I started out as a community healthcare worker at Johns Hopkins. When I got graduated from my master's, it was a research study I worked on and it was around cardiovascular health. So like health failure in African-Americans. And, um, you know, it was a great study. It was nice. All the researchers were, were fantastic. But when I went into the community, it was hard. Like I had the first, you know, talk and, you know, make sure that they felt comfortable before I could do anything and ask them for anything to make sure that they were comfortable and knew every part of what we were doing, every part of what they were signing up for. Our consent form was, was long, but we made sure that everything was included so that they knew what was going on because we knew the mistrust that was there. Um, but there are so many places still to this day and so many researchers um, that, that still try to do work in Hopkins, at Hopkins and try to go into East Baltimore just with you know the same you know white savior approach, the same you know, approach that we have all the answers, not using um, community-based participatory research, foundational skills, any of that. I mean, just walking in like, we got it, we'll fix everything, and people will shut the door on them. I mean, and, you know, it's hard to get around that. And so I think, and again, it's been earned. So I, I do want to make sure, you know, like you mentioned Tuskegee, you mentioned Harrietta Lacks, there are countless other, you know, things that have, um, that are, 100% valid, the mistrust is, is real. And so I think people understanding that and being empathetic and compassionate about that, and also being able to take no. There are some people, some places and some communities that have been so drained of their resources, trained, uh, drained of their, their trust that they don't wanna participate in this. They don't wanna have to try to figure out is this one safe or is this one not? And so being able to understand that and 
figuring out, you know, again, working with key, perform key informants in the community about, you know, where else should I go? How should I change this approach and be flexible to that? Um, but but trust is 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 everything, as Deja and, and Dr. McClendon has already said, like, it's absolutely everything. Yeah, and, and I, I absolutely, and, and I think really the onus is on us as the researchers and as clinicians to regain that trust. Um, it, we can't expect that communities are just all of a sudden going to trust us because we told them we can be trusted, right? So we have to figure out ways to regain that trust. And, you know, with a lot of community engaged researchers or research, the relationship between the community and the researcher, it starts well before the, re the actual research starts. Like oftentimes researchers will develop a proposal and develop a plan with their community stakeholders. And so that relationship starts way before there's anything, you know, that is going into the pipeline or being, being submitted for um, grant funding. Um, and I think another thing that can potentially be beneficial for engendering trust within communities is increasing the representation of researchers and clinicians of color. You know, the more I think that people see people who look like them, I think that starts to, it doesn't solve the problem, but I think it starts to help, um, it, it, it's going to help these, um, you know, the research field and the clinical field be more culturally aware because you're going to have more people from those communities in those settings but also it helps the community see like okay maybe this is something that i can try out maybe this is something that i can potentially trust because there are people who have had similar experiences to me or who come from similar communities to me doing this work um but at the end of the day it really starts with humility as Brandon was saying, you know, oftentimes as researchers walk into these communities and are like, hey, we've got the answers. We know what we're doing. You need to listen to us and follow our lead when we really need to enter into those spaces with humility. Like, I know some things, like I know how to do an RCT, but you know what the needs of your community are and you know the ways in which your community is best engaged. So that's your expertise and let's work together to help your community. Exactly. I was thinking the exact same thing as Dr. McClendon. I think that a lot of researchers go into a community like, I already know what you need. I have this plan and are so unwilling to listen to the community because they might have a completely different set of needs that you didn't even assess yet. Um, and so again, just really entering in with listening and understanding and coming in with that humility, I think is so important. Well, it sounds like there are solutions that are like right in front of us, right? Like it's as easy as being humble enough to acknowledge that you don't know everything. I know on previous episodes, I talk about this idea of cultural competency and how we need to destroy it because there is no checkbox that just says, oh, I've got everything figured out. We also need to have more minority led um, initiatives, right? So not just the researchers, but the whole team could be diverse so that people can understand that it's not just a insular experience, we talk about the idea of emerging best practices, right? So it's not just what's the evidence base. We're not just applying things that are, you know, documented within a registry, but acknowledging that cultural protective factors that you talked about, Brandon. Um, are there other solutions that we as practitioners and also as researchers should be considering for supporting community while also advancing evidence-based practices? I mean, the intervention I mentioned that I'm now evaluating, it, it really was a, a, um, it was a grassroots, it, it was developed in a grassroots, on a grassroots level. 
So it started sort of from the bottom with people who clinicians in training who were within um, this healthcare system who decided that they wanted to create an intervention and, you know, um, and, uh, and then eventually it got, it started to spread and then it got to the point where it was evaluated. So I think um, finding ways where researchers can really be open to looking for interventions that are created within communities. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit already, but, and then, um, and then finding ways to create an evidence base for things that practices that are already being used. Um, if that's what the community wants, you know, I mean, I think, again, it's really important to respect the community that you're in and to work with the community to see what's going to be the most helpful for them. Um, but I think sort of instead of starting in the ivory tower with our theories and our, you know, starting from the ground, I think can be one useful um, approach um, to getting some best practices in place that aren't only, that aren't so white centric as the practices we already have. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that having that community approach is, um, is going to be so critical to, to us having a collection of these things. I think a, a, a piece of it is for us to, us, when I say us, I mean, you know, people that are working in the field who are, you know, Black and other ethnicities, um, to create our own spaces where we can evaluate things, where we can have, you know, our own, you know, website, our own page that people can see, you know, a bunch of promising practices that have worked on the local level or have worked in specific communities. So people can get a sense of, you know, what were their issues? Like, oh, this, this looks like what we're experiencing in our community and they did X, Y, and Z. And so there's contact information you can reach out to, you know, whoever put it together, but there's so much on the local level that I think we're just not tapping into. I mean, there are community groups that do their own, you know, form of interventions. There are, uh, faith institutions that do their own type of interventions, youth-led spaces that are doing their own interventions. I mean, there's so much happening, you know, but again, they may not be calling it an intervention or they may not be, you know, looking at it that way. This is just, this is what we put together to help address this issue. But, you know, if they want to, to share it with other people, how can we assist them with that? If they would like to get some data, especially, you know, they probably have tons of qualitative data already, you know, again, and there's just not, you know, making that connection there, but how can we, can we help those of us who, you know, speak that language and, and work in research and, and who knows, um, you know, kind of what they would need to do to kind of elevate it in, in this space, um, you know, for us to, you know, reach out if that's something that they want to do, which I think is a, you know, a great point um, by Dr. McClendon is to make sure that they are, you know, this is something that they want to do, but if so, you know, to have a list and to build this out ourselves, you know, we have the capacity and the knowledge to fix our own communities. Like the people, we've been doing it for forever. It's just maybe a sense of we've always, or a lot of times, you know, now we want to be a part of those evidence-based practices. It is how to get research money and research dollars. And so that system is broken. So maybe we need to create our own to make sure that we're um, exposing each other to some of the things that are working in our own community. It's such a great point. And I'll just add that, you know, we don't always have to do like a big RCT to get evidence that something is working. I mean, 
you know, that's sort of the gold standard. And I think there's a place for it. And those kinds of studies are important. But if there's already um, a certain intervention or treatment going on in a community, like we can collect data right there on the ground if that's what um, people want to do, you know, so you can give people symptom measures or get qualitative data or, you know, find ways to collect data through like what's already going on. Um, and so that's one thing to also think about um, is that um, there are other ways to get evidence other than, you know, what is sort of the, um, the standard way or the traditional way. Yeah, and to kind of piggyback of both Brandon and Dr. McClendon, I think that for me in my research, I'm really interested in exploring how communities of color find these ways to thrive regardless of risk factors. And so like we know that there are different ways that the black community interacts with mental health, whether that be going to church or I'm going to talk about all my problems within uh, a hair salon or the barbershop, like those types of things. And so how do you take those like basic everyday types of things that happen within the black community and make them into something that can be um, evaluated within a therapeutic context? I think that those things are really interesting to me. And so in terms of like emerging best practices, I'm always like, what is the community already doing that's like so effective that I think that Brandon and Dr. McClendon have already really highlighted. But again, like there are ways that these communities are already thriving. So take that and run with it rather than trying to mold them and fit them into this, again, white-centric approach that's not working. Such a great point. I'm giving a presentation later this week all about community engagement from a macro social worker perspective. And the thing that I really want to drive home to folks is that the moment you step in a community, you need to look at what you see. And what you should see is you should view the assets, right? You're not going in there to address the deficiencies. And when you step into that space, remember that you have power, right? And you need to be prepared to share that power within the space. So I really love the idea of inviting community into the research room where you're saying like, these are the questions that we're considering asking. Do these even make sense? Is this in a way that you will understand what I'm trying to accomplish? And so there, I just love the fact that you all are already doing this and adopting it in your practice. And I hope that it just continues to scale, it becomes sustainable, and people acknowledge, you know, there's this whole other side of evidence-based practice that we're ignoring because of the barriers that we've created. Yeah, I really like the way you put that about sharing power. I think that's a huge part of it because I think oftentimes, traditionally, there's this reticence to share power with the community. Um, and there's this sense of superiority or a sense that sort of we know better because we have this objective science backing us up and sort of a, um, a denigration of the, of the expertise of the community. So I really like that terminology of sharing power because that is crucial. That's really the only way I think that we're going to really make a difference within um, traditionally you know, disenfranchised or marginalized communities in terms of mental health. Yeah, and I think to that point too, to go back to something Deja said previously, um, when we're talking about sharing power, also for those places and those institutions, those researchers who have created things that are evidence-based, to be able to allow those interventions to have criticism, have critique, have modifications, have different versions of it. You know, again, we all work in suicide prevention. Suicide prevention is, I mean, so white-centric, white-dominated. It's um, you know, it's insane. And there's a lot of places and interventions that, and things that have worked. Um, but when there's any talk of adapting it or getting 
um, you know, having the ability to, you know, shift things for a different community, there's often pushback. I mean, aggressive pushback against any type of, you know, flexibility there when people who have, again, different types of data and knows how it could be adapted to fit this, this community, there's so much pushback. And so I think as we talk about the, this exchange of, of power, you know, getting something, having it be evidence-based and then, you know, holding it and hoarding it and just saying, this is, this is what it is. It works for this population. And a lot of suicide prevention initiatives have been tested with, um, you know, white affluent or middle-class uh, individuals. You know, we don't have to be able to have that flexibility there is sharing power. It is empowering other communities. And so, you know, I, I also think that that is another key piece of it. Yeah. And people, in, clinicians in the community aren't going to adopt and implement interventions that don't allow flexibility. It's just not going to happen because they need flexibility because, um, you know, people have all sorts of things going on in their lives and different needs um, than what is encompassed within that evidence-based practice as is. And I, and I also just want to acknowledge that I think that there is a problem that needs to be talked about more within research with sort of research and um, publication and grant funding being connected to prestige and power. And I think that that really um, contributes to this sense of hoarding or not wanting to change things or not wanting to adapt, um, adapt things. And I think it's a cultural issue within the research community that that needs to be talked about more. I 100% agree with that point. So a majority of my listeners are students, right? Are social workers. And so if you could just leave one nugget for an up and coming practitioner, upcoming researcher working in this space, what would it be? As an up and coming practitioner, <laughs> researcher I'm still learning <laughs> and I think you know just being open to continuously learning I know that I'm not perfect um, and being open to whatever feedback and criticism that you get uh, I don't know all communities of color I don't even know all of the black community and so I think just again being willing to embrace any feedback and critique that you do get I totally agree with that I mean even as somebody early in my career who's out of graduate school I'm constantly learning, and I hope that people are constantly learning all the way to the end of their career. Um, but for social work, as I say, you picked the right field. <laughs> sometimes, I will, sometimes I think maybe I should have gone into social work, but clinical psychology is great too. Um, but what I will say is that, um, like, don't be afraid to ask questions. Like, don't be afraid to question kind of the status quo. You know, don't be afraid to ask like, hmm, there may be a different way we could be thinking about this or a different way we could be doing this. Like, don't take what is sort of has traditionally been done as the end all be all of how things need to be done. It's okay to think outside of the box. And I think it's really important to do that. And I'll, I'll piggyback off of, off of that and say, you know, when you experience those things and you, when you question certain things that have always kind of been the staple, when you see that there are things that are broken, it's okay to want to try to be a part of the solution. You know, share your ideas, share your thoughts, share your considerations, share your own experience because that's valid. 
into the into the mix and saying that you know when you know in this community this may not work or you know this thing kind of yields this you know it's okay to to act on them and, and kind of figure out a way that you can you know make change and impact um you know we oftentimes will see things that are broken but we are it looks so broken that we feel like we can't fix it so we kind of just go along with it but if you get to a point where you're seeing something is an issue trying to figure out in your in your way in your small part how you can be a part of the change so what's the best way for people to keep in touch with you i know i've heard some of you speak actually i was able to attend uh maryland's suicide prevention summit which i was so grateful that janelle put that out there how can people best follow your research follow you know some of your side ventures are there social media sites that you want to tag or reference i can be followed on twitter um at clement deja uh and that's pretty much it i feel like i don't really use any other forms of social media twitter is my outlet all the time yeah i'm i'm on twitter as well i'm brand j johnson one um, on Twitter, and also if you go to YouTube and look up the Black Mental Wellness Lounge, um, you'll see that page there. Definitely encourage you all to uh, to subscribe. If uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Doctor. Oh, I always say Doctor, but don't spell out the whole word. At Dr. Juliet M. Um, that's my Twitter handle, and I will definitely. Um, I always sort of plug anything that I'm doing, any talks I'm giving, anything like that um, on that website. Um, so feel free to follow me there. I'd like to just thank you all again. I mean, taking the time, especially on a Sunday, to share your experience and your expertise. It's been invaluable for me. I'm really excited, not just for you know the work that you're doing, the outcomes, but also for discourse right so people are talking about this they understand that there are gaps and there's people that are putting their tools to action so i'm appreciative to each and every one of you for what you're doing in that space and i, I hope to just continue to see more folks who look like us who are serving folks that look like us to be as healthy as they can be so thank you all for your time today and just looking forward to what comes next for you all thank you thank so much. you and thanks for having this podcast. It's a wonderful podcast, and I'm so glad that it, that it exists. Um, so thanks a lot. I'd like to really just thank my esteemed panel again for sharing, for participating in this first Community of Practice episode. I really think this idea of evidence-based practice has a lot of potential, naturally, but there's also those unintended consequences that we also have to have conversations and discussion on. I think when we consider the opportunities for integrating and adapting and adopting culturally relevant practices, things that may not stand up to the rigor of academic evaluation, there's so much more that we could be doing. And I think that's why we talk about equity, why we talk about community-based participatory research, why all of those things matter. More on that to come. We've got some really exciting conversations planned for later this year around culturally responsive evaluation and also what it means to conduct authentic community engagement. So stay tuned, a lot more to come. Announcements per usual. As always, follow us on social media. This time I have a call to action with it. 
with every community of practice episode we're going to be dropping questions on our instagram page that you should consider as you're listening to the episode there's probably a thousand things running through your mind after you hear the any episode but we really want to focus your thoughts and please engage respond you know challenge others to listen and think about these things as well our equity matters instagram page is at equity matters podcast we make it pretty simple for folks follow us on twitter the questions will be there too that's at equity matters pc we are having another episode next week so get ready Janelle Cubbage will be on. If you recall, I referenced someone in the Check on Your Black Friend episode that I thought would be a great asset to the podcast, a great feature, and she does not disappoint. And so be on the lookout for that episode. Take care of yourself. Wear your mask. Stay six feet apart. And do all the other things that bring you joy in this season. As always, equity matters. Equity matters.